Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And despite this being now 2022, this is our last episode looking at 2021, which Simon, you will know is episode 12 of season eight. Season eight, we're going into season nine. Who'd have thought we'd still have anybody listening, you know, apart from close family and friends and relatives and those who feel obliged to. But as we head into this, we can have a bit of a talk about the blog post from December, a little bit of a retrospective, perhaps think about what we've had going on in the last year. Uh, We'll see if we can get away without mentioning the virus. But let's start by just going through some of our blog posts, shall we? It's great to have you back, by the way, Simon. I I did make an effort to do it on my own, but uh, everyone knows that you are the brains behind this. And so we're just, you know, grateful you're here. So let's start with pulse oximetry and racial bias. In my work at the medical school at Southampton, I've been doing I've been been taking part in something, I don't know if you've heard of this, Simon, called reverse mentoring. And this is where I become a mentee of a a medical student who's my mentor. And it's to try and help old fogies like me understand a bit more about bias. This also goes into bias in how we measure things as well. And and this was about pulse oximetry and bias, uh, racial bias. Yeah, and I was quite glad to put this in because we've done quite a lot of things over the years on St. Emelins about how we treat people from different groups differently in the emergency department. We know, for example, that women and certain ethnicities don't get pain relief in the same way that um, others do. And we know that the diagnosis of things like cardiovascular disease is different in women and other ethnic groups. This paper which is looking at the use of pulse oximetry, which is one of the real core measurements that we take of patients coming into the emergency department, particularly when they're seriously ill. And, okay, we're only three minutes in, but I'm going to mention the virus, is a completely core measurement of patients who come in with COVID-19. It's actually not as reliable in certain ethnic groups as we thought it was. And there was a paper back in, I think it was in the Journal of Medicine last year from Michigan, that raised some observational data in, in a broad group of patients coming into hospital that maybe pulse oximetry wasn't picking up occult hypoxemia. So that's hypoxia. Occult hypoxemia means your SATs are actually below 88% when you measure them on ABG, whereas the pulse oximeter might be reading above 92. There's a real risk that we were getting occult hypoxemia in particularly patients with darker colored skins at a frequency and a rate which was really, really quite shocking. So this paper is a kind of a follow-up to that. It's looking at patients who are really, really sick. So this is patients who are awaiting to go on to ECMO, 364 centres in the US, examining their ABGs and comparing it to their pulse oximetry, and then dividing that by different ethnic groups or racial groups, determining whether or not there was occult hypoxemia, yes or no. And quite frankly, Ian, the, the numbers are really, really worrying. In this really sick group of patients, so the group of patients in whom you desperately do want to know whether your values are right or wrong, occult hypoxemia occurred in 10% of white patients, 21.5% of black patients, of Hispanic patients and 9.2% of Asian patients. So those are big numbers. And they did some more analysis, which shows that it's particularly black patients in whom this is a problem. And I don't know what you felt about this, but those numbers were just like huge in all groups, but massive in the in the black population. It was a real concern. We do bang on a lot about diagnostic testing, don't we? We talk a lot about decisions that we make and more and more how dependent we are on the numbers rather than what the patient looks like. I see this on a daily basis, I think, where, oh, the, this number's really worrying, but the patient looks fine, or the other way around. And this is just one of those things that if you didn't even think about or weren't aware of, you could be sitting happily with a, a patient in the recess room thinking, oh, well, this is okay. They're doing all right. Over 92, that's something to do with that dissociation curve. It's probably okay. 
But actually, the difference between 92% and 88% in actual function could be dramatic in the amount of oxygen they're getting into their cells. It's true. And we make decisions, don't we, about how are we going to treat patients based on that particular number. You know, this is, this is a number which has consequences and guides therapy and makes a difference and therefore makes a difference to the opportunity for those patients to survive. I, I think this is a really interesting paper for many, many reasons. There's a, there's a couple of caveats in there. One, one of the interesting ones, I think, is that this is an, an American paper. And particularly when they talk about different groups, these are self-defined by the patients. So these are, what's a black patient? A black patient is a patient who declared themselves as black and when they asked them to self-declare what their grouping was. It gets a little bit complicated when we start talking about um, Asians because American Asian is different from British Asian. In the UK, we've got to be a little bit cautious here that in the US, the Asian group is often sort of Japan, Korea, that far eastern side of Asia, whereas for the UK, it's more the Indian subcontinent. And clearly, there may be differences in skin tone, which we think is the driving reason why there's a difference with the pulse oximetry. It's an issue of skin tone. And actually, that's what we really need information on here, isn't it? We need to know whether skin tone makes a difference as opposed to self-declared groupings. So where does this leave us, Simon, for you? If you've got a patient in the recess room, you now have this knowledge that pulse oximetry isn't great in certain groups. Does that mean we're going to have to start stabbing people and doing more arterial blood gases? That's not where I'd want to go, I don't think. That would be a backward step, wouldn't it? How do we mitigate against this? Well, I think in the short term, I think it has lowered my threshold for doing an ABG. And I know that's something that you and I have been very keen to avoid over the years. But if I see a patient in whom I think, actually, do you know what? This patient doesn't look right, or I've got a concern, I will now progress and do an ABG. That's in the short term. I think this data has to show us that. And particularly if it's a patient who has uh, increased skin pigmentation, I think you've got to go and do that. In the longer term, there's actually some data here, and we put a Uh, links up on the blog post, that there are solutions to this. There are technical solutions which have been around for many, many years. And there's ongoing work now with the Intensive Care Society and various other different organisations, which will hopefully mean that the devices will change and improve. Because according to the stuff which I've read, is the technical solution is out there. We just need to make it happen. And that, that really worries me. I mean, if this has been known about for a long period of time, and there is a technical solution, why don't we have it now? But that's a bigger question for cleverer people than me. We can only speculate. But the take home message I think here is you're in the recess room, you've got a sick patient. If they have a a non-white skin pigmentation, there is a chance their pulse oximetry is not as accurate as you'd think. And if they look poorly, do an ABG. Does that feel like a relatively decent way of approaching that? I think that's very pragmatic and very sensible whilst we wait for a better technological solution. So when we go to another thing that causes us some, well, concern and worry, well, that's hard to say with emergency medicine, isn't it? Almost everything causes concern and worry. Are CT scanners becoming more sensitive at detecting subarachnoid hemorrhage? So Simon, this was a blog post that you've written. Before we get into it, we're talking about sensitive in that title. What do you mean by are CT scanners becoming more sensitive at detecting subarachnoid hemorrhage? For a long period of time, the approach to the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage has been to do a CT. If the CT is positive, then to declare it positive, although that could be a false positive, and declare it positive and treat the patient as a subarachnoid. If the CT is negative, then to perform a lumbar puncture. That would then be the definitive test about whether or not they've got it. Now, There are problems with that approach, lots and lots of problems. And one of the key things that has happened over the last 20 years is the ability of CTs to become more and more sensitive, better at picking up subarachnoid hemorrhage, particularly in patients who present within a short time span of their onset of symptoms. 
And I think there's pretty good evidence out there now that within six hours, if you've got a good quality CT scanner, you've got a good quality radiologist, and that's really important. You've got a short period of time from symptom onset and you have a negative CT, that pretty much rules out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. What this paper is looking at and what um, other um, people around the world have been asking is whether or not, well, actually, maybe CTs are getting so good now that maybe we can extend that six hour limit to maybe 12 hours or 24 hours or maybe even 48 hours. And maybe within that period of time, if your CT is negative, maybe you don't need to progress to a lumbar puncture or to at least have a conversation about having a lumbar puncture. So that's essentially what this study did from Christchurch in New Zealand. So take us through what happened afterwards. So are they getting more sensitive and specific? Uh, Is it that we can change our practice? I've always felt slightly uneasy about this whole LP thing and slightly segueing, but I do love a diagnostic test. One of the things that's come out recently with the increasing prevalence of the COVID-19 in the community is this idea, and you'll wonder why I'm going here, Simon, I can't help myself, is that the idea that now if you have a positive lateral flow test, you no longer need a PCR related to population prevalence. And I really enjoy the fact that this is the statistics that you and I nerd out about is now people have to try and understand it. And there's a bit of that here, isn't there? What is the population that we're testing for subarachnoid hemorrhage in the emergency department? Because awful lots of people who get a headache, who when asked the very leading question, is this the worst headache you've ever had? Brackets, I'm going to say yes, because otherwise you won't take me seriously, doctor. Please look after me, close brackets. The prevalence in our department's it's not high for subarachnoid and that will have an effect, won't it? It will. And the prevalence in our department is around about 10%. For the patient who comes in and says it's the worst headache ever and or the thunderclap type onset, then it's about 10%. It's been roughly that for the last sort of 20, 30 years. So it's still quite high, but the majority of the cases you will admit and cases you will investigate will be negative. The thing about this paper is that the reason why I put it in really is because I looked at the headline figures. I looked at the abstract as you do. And it said, oh, look at this. The um, sensitivity for subarachnoid hemorrhage going up to 24 hours is 99%. And I thought, excellent. That is something which might make a difference to my practice. Because like you, I'm not a big fan of doing LPs. So a lot of the patients I will go and see um, who've got a negative CT, if there were low pretest probability, they've got a negative CT, maybe it was sort of you know, 18 hours later, 12 hours later, we'll have a conversation and a discussion about whether or not it's worth doing an LP. Anyway, put that to one side. Is it really 99%? This is why you have to get your critical appraisal head on when you look at diagnostic studies. The first thing about this study is it's 347 patients who had subarachnoid hemorrhage. This isn't patients who turn up in the ED with a headache. This is patients who they know have got a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So they've taken a group of patients in whom they know have got subarachnoid hemorrhages and then looked back to see whether the CT was diagnostic. And that's not our patient group. And that's what I think you've got to be really careful when you look at diagnostic studies like this, because that is not the group that's coming through us at all. That said, if they were able to follow up all the patients in their region and look at all the mortality records and look at all the different centres and follow the patients up for long periods of time, maybe you could get away with it. Haven't really done that here. What they have done is they've looked at that group of patients in whom they are definitely positive because they've said they are. They've gone back and they've said, We've got a really high sensitivity for subarachnoid hemorrhage with CT. Well, kind of, that's what you'd expect because you're both the gold standard and the test are the same thing you're looking for for the majority of these patients because the majority of patients were positive on the CT. So it gets all circular in the analysis. And more than that is breaking it down. So for what we know already is if you see a patient who's 
been seen within six hours of their onset of symptoms, you can use a CT to exclude. Fine. We probably shouldn't be bulking that group of patients into this analysis. I'm interested in the group of patients who are not the ones I already know what to do with. I'm interested in the ones who are more than six hours. And in that group, sensitivity is actually quite low. 15 out of 108 patients were missed with the CT. So I think this is a really interesting paper because it's looking at the wrong group that we're interested in. And the way it's been put together means that the statistics look overly enthusiastic, ambitious and reassuring. And I don't think that's enough here for us to change our practice. There you go, folks. Critical appraisal in action and why it really matters not to just take the headline figure and then stick that into your clinical practice. So it's always great to have your brain working on these things. I learn something every time. And and it is that idea that the, the, the study has to relate to our group of patients. And I can hear uh, Ken Milne in my head now saying, is this the group of patients in which we're interested in when he goes to his checklist on the SGEM podcast, which I would continue to highly recommend if you want to hone your critical appraisal skills. So the bottom line for you, Simon, with this, are CT scanners getting more sensitive at detecting subarachnoid hemorrhage? The more I think about it, the more I think it's a terrible question because it is actually the radiologists reading the CT scanners. I suspect they probably are because technology moves on, but I don't think this paper is the one that tells us to change practice. Liz Crow, just before Christmas, wrote a lovely little blog post, to touch or not to touch, that is the question. Simon, people who have met you uh, and even people who haven't met you may be aware that you're not really a hugger. Would that be a fair thing to say? I mean, even pre-COVID, you're not really a hugger. I'm not a huge hugger, no. I mean, I would say that Liz is more of a hugger, I would think. But this was from Liz in her excellent way, looking at what it's like when we can no longer have that touch between individuals, between human beings, and and what that does to connection. And she goes through about the different ways this is with development and personality and social interaction. It made me think a bit about when I use touch at work. I remember back to Cliff Reed talking to me about being a trauma team leader. And he would say, look, if you're trying to get somebody's attention, a very just gentle hand on their shoulder to say, listen, Phil, can you possibly just help me by doing this? Accompanied by that sensation of touch may well make your interaction more successful than without it. As a non-toucher, Simon, I'm sure you've not missed it, but how do you feel that touch affects you in your practice and, and, and in your life as well? Well, I think it's really important. And, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not been walking around in a bubble for the last 30 years. I think touch is really important. And the examples that you've given there from Cliff, absolutely incredibly powerful during running a team environment to use touch to emphasize a point, to gain attention or to just stop people doing things or to get them to do things. I think that is very important. I think it's a great read actually and about the importance. And my approach has very much been the fact that I have my views, but for other people, touch is really much more important to them. And part of being a member of a team is to uh, find a neutral zone where I can be in contact with people and they can be in contact with us. So we're both comfortable about it, but it's not weird. There was actually a really interesting RCT um, that came out in December that they actually did a randomized control trial of different sorts of hugging. So actually hugging for a longer period of times is more socially acceptable and less weird than short hugs. And how to hug, where do you put your arms and stuff like that? Increasingly, it looks from this data from Liz and also this RCT and some other stuff from some great huggers in the St. Emmons team, notably Ross Fisher, is that there is science out there that says that hugging is important, touch is important, interpersonal touch is really important. It's great for building teams. So as an evidence-based medicine physician, I need to get my act together, don't I? 
I need to join the club. Well, this is where we have to accentuate that just because you heard it on a podcast doesn't mean it's true. And also, I think it's important that we should say that this is where both parties consent to the hug. Yes. So even even in an RCT, you're not allowed to approach so a colleague on the shop floor, start to hug them and say, this needs to last five minutes because that's what the evidence <laughs> shows. OK, we, we often talk about FOMED, uh, but let's make it very clear. We are not giving you the evidence-based green light to start hugging your colleagues for indiscriminate amounts of time because that's evidence-based hugging. Okay, please don't do that. But what we are saying is that touch is important. On a really serious point, there are lots and lots of examples of inappropriate touch and inappropriate hugging um, out there on social media and things which we've been involved in, you know, supporting colleagues who've been put in some very difficult situations. So yeah, can't emphasize enough that this has to be appropriate mutually um, agreed and just the right thing to do. Don't get weird on people, folks, and don't put people under pressure. I've been reading some stuff on social media recently. I'm trying to limit the amount of social media I read. So I'm down to, you know, only nine hours a day. Some of the things that are reported on there about some of the stuff that people do to... I, I'm. Are you surprised by it? So I'm just, I'm sorry to skip to nothing, but there's all sorts of talk about male consultants with females. You know, is that, are you aware of these things in your roles? Is, is this really going on? Yes is the simple answer and um am i surprised no i'm not surprised now because i've had to deal with many many um, instances of this over the years and it's extremely distressing for those involved and it, you know it's just basically wrong i don't think i need to say anything more about it than that when i first got involved in medical education and and, and particularly supporting junior colleagues in various different situations yeah i was amazed i thought this is a one off situation and then you realize it's not a one off situation and often there's lots of things going on which are not talked about. And very often when you actually get to the point where you, somebody raises a, a legitimate and significant concern, you then find that it's actually been going on for years in various different places in various different ways. So, yeah, I'm absolutely, utterly appalled by the behaviour of some of my colleagues. And, you know, I've got no, no, no sympathy or defence for them at all. And I'm very glad when they um, get taken to the cleaners. So, yeah, not enough, enough said about that. But, yes, I think you have to believe people. And you have to take um, all such concerns very, very seriously. Please, I, I, I don't know if St. Emlyn's can do anything to help with it. I don't know if we can help people call this out. It, and, and if you see it in colleagues and if you see it in others, we need to support anybody in whatever way that's happening. It, I've just been really quite taken back by, by the whole thing, really. Uh, so to finish that, we've mentioned inappropriate touching and appropriate touching. Uh, we're going to encourage the idea that we need to think about appropriate touching. Uh, and I'm sure you all know us well enough to know what we mean. Uh, Stefan then wrote a nice post later in the month about pragmatically about capacity. Well, I say he wrote it. He managed to get Simon Horn to write it. And it's always great to have guests doing posts. It gives a different voice, a different view, and often a different experience. And in this case, coming from the military, from that sort of background. And I'm always fascinated to read about people who practice in different environments to us. And this, to me, made a lot of sense. We worry these days, don't we, about our capacity. You see it all the time on the telly, crowding in emergency departments. I'm sure that we're about to elect a new president for the College of Emergency Medicine after Catherine Henderson has done a quite superb job. Uh, how anyone can follow in her footsteps, I'm not sure. But I'm sure crowding will be at the top of the list of the stump speeches, if indeed those occur. Uh, about one of the things that we just worry about. Do you think pragmatically about capacity, Simon? 
not in quite the same way that Simon Horn so eloquently put together for, for the blog, based on a talk he gave at USEM in Lisbon this year. And he's an interesting guy, uh, Simon Horn, very, very clever ED consultant, but also is a military doctor. He's a lieutenant colonel in the RMC and works with the Centre for Defence Healthcare Engagement. And there's a couple of things in here which really made me stop and think. And the first is that whenever you get very busy, you naturally and realistically and honestly, and let's talk about it openly, get a difference between capacity and capability. The big message here is that if you get overwhelmed, if you get more patients or more problems than you can deal with, then your capability goes down. Intuitively, we kind of know this, don't we? That, you know, if you get a major incident and there's like 50 casualties, your capacity will be challenged. Therefore, your capability will go down. You can't get everybody to the right place in the right time as you would like. What's in this blog, though, is the idea that the NHS and certainly emergency departments at the moment are in this state most of the time. In fact, if I go back to where we were, say, 20, 30 years ago, I would say a lot of our emergency departments are actually operating as a major incident for quite a lot of the time in terms of triaging patients, about patients who have got very significant needs, not being seen as quickly as they um, would like to be seen or we would like them to be seen because of the capacity issues. And he brings out some other really interesting concepts. So we, you and I, we're, off, we're always talking about the gold standard, aren't we? And about you know being excellent and being amazing and being fantastic and doing the best that you can for your patients. Well, maybe we need to start thinking about overtly talking about what the silver standard is, about what do we do when we just don't have the capacity to deal with the patients who are in front of us. And we'll say, well, okay, well, there are certain things we're just not going to do anymore because we can't deliver that gold standard. We'll talk about a, a silver standard. And he also talks about looking at your systems and um, using the Pareto principle, which I must admit I'd heard in the past, but I had to go and look up, is that 80% of the consequences of what happens to in any system, in this case to our patients, is um, based on 20% of what we actually do to them. So really looking hard at your systems to find out where the, the key areas are, about what does good look like, what really makes a difference, and focusing your efforts in those areas, even when you've got overcapacity, too many patients, not enough staff, not enough flow, all of those other things. Really, really good way of looking at things overtly. And the word that came through to me, having read this, is honestly. We can't pretend that we can do everything for everybody all the time when we're overcapacity. And I think we have to come to terms with the fact that as individuals, that's okay. I think people tend to carry this burden of, well, I couldn't do all of this for all these people all the time. And they that goes with them when they leave the department. One thing I've learned to do more and more is to package up work into work and then not work. I go into work. I do my absolute best. I'm not responsible for much to do with the hospital system or the NHS or uh, how many nursing staff we have or how many doctors we have or, or which government is in power. All I can do is do my best as an individual in the situation I find myself. And if I do that to the best of my ability, I have learned to put aside my frustrations or all the rest. I feel for those people who are less able to do that, where they carry that burden with them, whether they're in work or out of work, whether they're at home or in the hospital. I think that is incredibly tiring, exhausting. My recommendation is somebody who's done this for a while is just maybe think about how you approach your own feelings towards what happens when you're in work. I think that's wise advice. And um, it probably leads quite nicely onto the last post of the year, which is our, just our reflections from the team, which is something I think you put together, Ian. 
Well, I did with help of others. Before we move on, just very quickly, the, our conversation here reminded me of Robert Lloyd's post. I don't know if you remember this, Simon, from this is way back in 2016 when he was working in South Africa. And he was describing when he went to Kailisha in South Africa as a junior doctor and just how sometimes he could feel completely overwhelmed. And he described a single night as 32 stabbed chests, one stabbed heart, four guns. I won't read them all. And just how you can then deal with that stress and challenge versus threat and those sorts of things. I would highly recommend you go back and have a look at that post. It's not long, but it says exactly what you need to know about those times where you might find yourself approaching what Robert and others would describe as sort of a black level or a gray level where you're just starting to get overwhelmed. And uh, it's worth a read. Yes. On to the reflections. Well, some, I did. I did put something together. I mean, I feel like I do need to pull my weight more in 2022 when it comes to these things. But all I really did was I asked members of the team to tell us about their reflections on 2021. And the brief was deliberately broad. Often we've done the tell us your favorite thing. Tell us your favorite television program. This was tell us something. And actually, it was really nice to get what mattered to people across the team. Listen, Emlyn's team, not all of them come on the podcast, not all of them write blog posts, but they're all in the background doing bits towards the, the site itself and, and keeping going. We have an active WhatsApp group, which acts as a combination of educational planning and, uh, well, a degree of therapy uh, and amusement too. And all of the individuals on there give something to our team in, in a, a most profound way. And I really enjoyed reading about what they remembered from 2021 and just how different we all are. And also in a particularly challenging year, the, the work that people have done around the pandemic and not around the pandemic, about the sort of personal highlights and things which people have enjoyed doing. I think it's really important to talk about not just the worky type stuff, not the St. Emlyn stuff necessarily, but also the other things which keep people going. And one of the things I think about our team is that they're always kind of on the move. They're always slightly doing things differently. You've done a lot more undergraduate this year, for instance. You've got loads out of that, lots and lots of interest, and it's worked into blog posts and other things and other projects that we've done. But everybody's in that sort of mindset. If you know, if I had to describe the St. Emlyn's team, it would be a group of individuals who have a curious mind. That's what keeps us interested. That's what keeps us going. And it what keeps us, I hope, um, a little bit innovative. Just as an addendum to that is, we can, like all the best teams, choose times where we just want to dip in and out. At any point over the last five to 10 years, each member of our team has had a period of time where they've just had too much else on. So yes, we're all curious. Yes, we all like doing stuff, but please don't believe that in order to enjoy medicine, you have to be a chronic overachiever and over performer. That's really not true. And in fact, I'm, I like to think of myself as the, as the, uh, as the real, um, the real, what's the word I'm looking for? Sensible bond. But no, they're a great team. And we should, as we as we end season eight, just say thank you to all of them. As I say, they don't all you don't get to hear all of their voices at any one time, but they're all in the background, spread across the world, all giving a different perspective to the team. And and I think I'm really lucky that they help make me a better person and a better clinician. So our little end of season thanks to them, I think. I would agree totally. And let's hope that we may possibly soon get to meet some of them in person again. So we will be here, Simon, and that takes us into our new season. What hopes do you have for the, the next year? What would you like to see St. Emlyn's doing and what would you like to see doing 
We've talked about the past. What's the future? Difficult to know. We will continue to be reactive. We'll continue to talk about stuff which we find interesting. We'll try and bring you the latest and the greatest and the, the controversial stuff that's out there. Love to do some more podcasting with you. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, let's just, let's just you know, we're, we're, I'm quite happy being reactionary. Let's just see where we go. And hopefully we'll drag you along with us, kind listener. If you enjoy the podcast, please do like, subscribe, rate, do all those things that other podcast people ask you to do. Uh, if you don't enjoy the podcast, please subscribe but don't rate it. Just subscribe. (laughs) That would be helpful. And we will see you in season nine. Thank you again for your continued support. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the blog, the podcast. If there's any more you'd like from us or different things you'd like us to think about or talk about, do get in touch. We're always there on Twitter. Always there. Too many times. And we're there wherever you need us and we'd love to help. So with that, we'll sign off from this season and say, see you soon. Take care, everybody. Have fun, folks. (laughs) 